All right, so true confessions of a pastor the week before the week before Christmas Eve. I have to say that uh, you know you choose the a narrative lectionary, you choose something like that to get the whole scope of Scripture, and it's nice because the added bonus is that it it plans out your text. But I as I read over Ezra this week. I'm sure that there are more imaginative people in the room than I am, but this was a difficult week of studying the text. It's not because it's terribly difficult. It's not because there were, you know, uh, tricky Hebrew words in there. It's not because of the the back and forth of the scholarship. Um, It's just because, well, it didn't fit didn't fit with Christmas. It didn't fit with, with Advent. Here we are eight days away from Christmas, and somehow they expect me, uh, the, the people who put the lectionary together, expect me to preach a sermon on the end of the Judean exile, drop names like Zerubbabel, Cyrus, and Shealtiel, and somehow connect it in under 30 minutes to the birth of our Lord and Savior. Right. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface as to whether I'm even going to be asleep or awake at the end of it. Might as well put a domino sign on my car because that's the only way we're doing this in 30. But here's the thing. As I read and reread and reread the story, I saw people grappling deeply with the brokenness of this world and wondering what God's faithfulness meant to them in those moments. These are a people who, despite all their pain, all their heartache, and all of their shattered dreams and memories, still rose to worship God. They still got up to offer His praises when God showed up. And that's what this is about. As we read Ezra, it's going to teach us that in worship we can bring the joyful and the painful all together in our worship, to bring our whole selves to God when we worship. I'm probably going to be a bit more behind the podium today because this was a harder one, Uh, and I want to make sure I get it right. But let me invite you to grab your Bible, open it up to Ezra, Uh, We're going to be in Ezra 1 and then in Ezra 3, and then let's take a look at this together. Ezra is actually closer towards the front of the Bible than towards the the back of the Old Testament. It's actually the 12th book of the Old Testament, despite the fact that um, it is probably as uh, equally close to Jesus as it was to David. So... uh, First and Second Chronicles comes first, and then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And as we read this together, uh, we're going to see the, both the painful and the joyful brought together. And the two main points that I want to make here is that, first of all, God is equally present to us in our suffering as He is in our success, and that worship brings our whole being into the presence of God. So keep that in mind as we read. We're going to start in... Uh, Ezra 1, we'll read the first four verses and then skip to 3. Hear God's word. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill what the Lord uh, 
uh, the, fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Skip to 3, 1 through 4, and then we'll skip to verse 10. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, uh, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed each day. To verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. This is God's word to us today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to understand this passage. Help us to, to open our hearts and our minds and to understand your presence in all aspects of our lives, even, the, even the, the aspects that we least expect. Lord, show us the way that you move. Show us the way that you love us. Show us the way that you look after us, even when we think you are absent. Strengthen my words during this time, for mine are empty, just a, just a vapor in the wind. But you, O oh God, you hold the very words of eternal life. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We are in a period of Israel's history that is quite dark. 
Another reason why I didn't appreciate this eight days before Christmas. We have enough gray weather around. But this is a, a period of Israel's history that is particularly dark. The, the northern kingdom had been wiped out about 200 years prior to this, and the southern kingdom had been wiped out uh, as well at this point. The Babylonians had come in. You may remember from your, from your, um, your history classes in school the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon who actually laid the siege and who took away the Israelites from Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah lived during that time, and Jeremiah, uh, at the, the cost of his own safety, had prophesied the fact that the people would be exiled, that, that Judah would be leveled, that, that the temple would be gone, that, that, the, um, that the, the king would no longer sit in Jerusalem. People didn't like that. That wasn't a friendly prophecy. But Jeremiah was faithful, and what he said came to pass. And Jeremiah had told the people that it would be 70 years from the, from the deportation until they would see Judah again. And well, what happened... The, the Babylonian armies came, they laid siege to Jerusalem, and they, they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They took the, the king and the royal officials and deported them to Babylon. They, they then went up to the temple, and they lit it on fire, and then tore down the walls after the, the fire had ended. The, the temple that had been built by Solomon, the temple that that was dedicated to the Lord, the, the temple that had the Ark of the Covenant within it, the temple that represented God's, Yahweh's eternal presence with the people of Israel that said, you are my people and I am your God, was destroyed, was leveled, was gone. That sign of, of being the, the chosen people sign of peace, the sign of favor, had been gone. And the people went into exile, and God gave them prophets even in exile to assure them of His presence. And it was in that moment that, that He told them to, to settle down, don't, don't be ready to leave Babylon, but, but be a part of the city. Marry, be given in marriage, build houses, pray for the prosperity of the city because when it prospers, you too will prosper. And the people settled down. And year by year, you had to imagine that the, the hope of going back to Jerusalem for some of those families, just every year died just a little bit more until the people of God had a painful resignation that the way that they knew life was over. We know a little bit of that. We know what it's like to have that, that world die kind of uh, before us. When we had two weeks where we thought, come out on the other side of this, two weeks turned into two months, two months turned into two years, and now... If you're like me, you kind of wonder, what was it like before we had to stay inside, before we had to, 
to, to think about things that we never had to think about before. It was a difficult time in the history of Israel. And I'm sure that there were a number of people that, that wondered, where is the Lord in all of this? And it's at the end of these 70 years, it's at the end of this, this time that was prescribed by Jeremiah through, uh, by God through Jeremiah, that a new king comes to be in power in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the last uh, strong king of Babylon, and uh, after him, the empire started to decline, and and the Persian Empire came into power, and Cyrus came into power, and Cyrus issued a proclamation when he took over Babylon. And he said, if you, are, uh, if you have come from Judah, you may go back. You may go back and rebuild your temple. In fact, I'm going to give you the resources to do that. I'm going to allow the, I'm going to order that the people among whom you live are going to give you resources and send you back to your land to rebuild your temple. Cyrus wanted the people praying to their own gods that he would be successful. Yet in Scripture we are told that whatever Cyrus's motives were, the whole plan was God's. Here was an opportunity to rebuild. The people were given an opportunity to go home after 70 years. In Sunday school, we discussed it a little bit like, it's like when a hurricane goes through the south, people move out all of a sudden, they are exiled from their home. And you know, when it comes time to rebuild, there are some people that just said, you know, that was my last hurricane. I think I'm done with those. Welcome to the north side of the Mason-Dixon line. And it may have been like that for those families. There may have been families that just said, I'm not going back to what is there. I'm not going back to the destruction. I'm not going back to the heartache. I'm not going back to the threat of another, uh, of another invasion. I am here in Babylon. But there were people, there were 50,000, 50,000 exiles that said, I'm going to go back. And what we see in this what we see in the, the 50,000 exiles moving back and what we see in the, the people who were there amongst the rubble of Jerusalem is we see the fact that, that God was equally present in both places because as the prophets talk, as the prophets speak, God's presence may have left the temple, but God did not leave his people abandoned in the midst of the rubble. God was raising up prophets to the people who were in exile, and God was preparing the homeland for, and preparing the people who were back in Jerusalem. God was equally present in the destruction and in the exile. He was working to return the people's hearts to him. Even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the uncertainty. God always wanted his people to return to him. 
The punishment was never meant to kill and destroy and to, 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 to wipe off the face of the earth, but the punishment was meant to call people back. Because God is a loving God, but He's also a holy and a just God and can't deal with persistent sin. And when the people came back, they started work on the thing that mattered. They started work on the temple. Because they had at least learned that in their exile that, that as their lives should go, their faith in God, their faith in Yahweh should be at the heart of everything. And so as they come back, they come back to build, rebuild and to rebuild the temple. And that's where we are in the scene of Ezra. Ezra is, is one of the leaders that was called to, to rebuild Jerusalem. He was one of the leaders who, who came back from Babylon to, to lead the people in, in, in reestablishing life as they knew it, but was never to be the same again. And what happened is what we might imagine and what we actually know from being on the other side of a, of a world-shaking event. There are some people who went back to Jerusalem, and as soon as this first stone was laid for the temple, all right, we've done it, we're back, we're here. And the world was full of promise, and the world was, was full of possibility, and, and God is faithful. Do you see that stone? It is, that's the first sign. But there were also people, and, and the Scripture notes that it was the people who had lived during the previous era who actually had seen the, the, the temple in its former glory, had seen Solomon's t temple, the, the three-story edifice on top of the, the, the mountain of Zion that, that dominated life and that... that the priests ran like a well-oiled machine and, and there were sacrifices and there was, there was activity and, and they remember that. And now all that's left of it is a, is a stone? That's all that's left of our former way of life? There's no more brazen pot. There's no more sacrifices and the priesthood is trying to figure out what to do and the stones are charred and they're, they're cracked from the heat of when it was destroyed and I remember when I remember when what they were experiencing was that pain of loss and what they were experiencing was what Paul described in Romans chapter 8 when Paul writes that the creation was subjected to frustration. So all of us were subjected to frustration, not by our own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. They, they lived in an era of, 
of what do we do now. They lived in an era of frustration and wondering. They lived in an era of wondering where God was and wondering where their hope would come from. And if you know that feeling, you've experienced it too as well. A desire to get back to the way things were meant to be, a desire to, to... to see something that you can never see again, a desire and, and, and a holy restlessness that this world is just not the way it is supposed to be. There is joy, but there's an asterisk next to that joy. There's hope, but we don't quite understand it. We can know what these exiles were going through, these people who had seen the former glory. We talked a little bit in Sunday school, those days when, when church, that churches have this memory. Well, when we set up chairs in the, in the aisleways and when the, the, the worship services were overflowing and when people came and, and, and now, where is God? Where did the people It's a painful, painful experience. And as we prepare to celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus, His his coming, His his advent, it's important that we recognize that, that this is the feeling of our world, that we're not quite there yet. And it's okay. It's okay to bring the pain. It's okay to bring the frustration. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, if, if it's your position to offer praise with loud shouts this year, you know, are, are you in the position to offer God high, extravagant exaltation? Are you in the position of just everything is going well and, and, and you know, you could look like the, some of those people who were building the temple and say, the first stone is in, the future is wonderful, God is here, things are moving, hallelujah. If that's your position, then do it. If it's your ability to worship like that, bring all of that and worship because God is doing amazing things and the, the presence of, of Jesus on Christmas Day is a sign that the first stone is in place. Show that through your worship. Bring the praise that you have for God's graciousness and provision in your life. That foundation that was rebuilt was an amazing thing. After 70 years of destruction and exile, those stones on the ground symbolize God's provision to the people even though they didn't deserve it. It showed that God was still with them, despite their sinful nature, and that God was looking after their well-being. God was providing for them in ways that they could not provide for themselves. They couldn't order the surrounding peoples to give them food and gold and silver and building supplies. It was a sign of grace for them in the moment. And it was a sign that God would continue to give them grace in the future. But this isn't a passage that shows a happy ending for everyone. I love it 
when Scripture shows us the reality of life, when Scripture shows us, you know, that all aspects of life. There were people there that could remember the old days. Like I said, they remember the three-story temple they, they built by the legendary King Solomon. They remembered that massive temple with all of its outer rooms. They re- remembered the, the elaborate and well-oiled machine that was the priesthood offering sacrifices. They remembered a time when they thought the temple would last forever that there would not be a day when they would not see the temple. Those of us probably about my age and older would remember a day that we never thought we would see a Sears store close. Amen? And yet now there's what? Eight of them? Eight. After employing 50,000 people? The entire exile population of Judah? They remember that time. And now all that these exiles could see was a bare foundation. They saw stones cracked from the heat of the fire, like I said. They saw the char marks on the the ground that, that reminded them of the burning of the temple. They saw nothing on top of those foundations. All they could see were memories of days gone by and it made them weep. Perhaps this year you feel a bit more like the priests and families remembering different times, a different era. Perhaps what you have to offer are tears. Perhaps what you have is pain. Perhaps the memories seem like towering monuments, plates full of food, homes full of people, the air full of laughter and joy, and all you see now is emptiness. Just a bare foundation like the burned cracked stones upon which those exiles celebrated their first worship after coming home. You're coming back to God and finding things a little bit empty, and that's what you have to bring. Worship that is laden with tears and with pain. Worship that comes from a place of emptiness that, rather than a place of overflowing joy. Worship that is full of confusion, doubt, frustration, and longing for something that doesn't and can't exist anymore. And if you wonder whether you should bring that type of worship to the birth of our Savior, let me answer that in two words. Bring it. Bring it. Read verse 13 again. No one could distinguish, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. In that moment, their worship no matter how happy, no matter how sad, no matter how painful, or no matter how exuberant, melted into one voice of worship. There's no comment that God said, I'm accepting the voices of the happy and exuberant and joyful people, and I'm ignoring the sounds of pain. There was one voice that worshiped God. 
It was all commingled into one. They all worshiped God in that moment by bringing with them what they had brought in that moment. What that means is that no matter where we are, no matter how we are feeling this Advent season, we are able to bring our whole selves to God. Our whole being, just as Jesus brought himself fully into humanity, we are bring, able to bring our full human experience to the whole of God. He desires our worship in a unified voice, full of all of who we are, just as he did with the exiles. He desires to hear our voices, to have us worship so let me challenge you. Oh gosh, you're going to add one more thing during Christmas week? Seriously? I'm not going to ask you to preach. It's all right. You can if you want. Let me challenge you to do something this week. Take 15 minutes this week, at least once, to be quiet. 15 minutes at least once this week to be quiet. Support one another in this. Families, make time for one another. Husbands, encourage your wives. Wives, encourage your husbands. Friends, call one another and say, have you done it? But in that time, bring whatever you have this year. Whether it's joyful, whether it's painful. Whether it is great gain from the year or whether it is painful loss from the year whether it's something you want to shout from the mountaintops or something you even fear to utter. Bring all of that in those quiet moments in worship to God. As Job said and, and as was translated in the, the KJV, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And let me say that you can even use the refrain that is right there in verse 11 of Ezra. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever because that is the message. He is good. And his love towards us, his new Israel, endures forever. Can you say that? He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. Do you believe it? then he is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. People, do you believe it? He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. Bring your praise. Bring your sorrows. Bring everything that you have been storing up in your heart this past year and give it to God in worship. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good. And your love towards us endures forever. When we are faithless, you are faithful. When we are, are short-sighted, you have our best interests in mind. When we don't know the way forward, you are the light in the darkness. You have shown your love for us over and over again. And, oh God, we give you thanks. Whether that is painful or whether that is joyful, we give you thanks and we give you worship.
Help us. Help us to see your faithfulness in the pain and help us to see all of your hopes for us in the joy. We give you thanks. Bury this word deep in our hearts and help us to take it out to a world that desperately needs your transforming love. All this we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen.